I, uh, I just finished a book by a guy named Jonas jo- Jonason. Jonas Jonason, that's his real name. Uh, titled, The 100-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out of the Window and Disappeared. That's the title, not the whole book. Um, this book follows the life of a guy named Alan Carlson, who, you guessed it, is 100 years old. And on his 100th birthday, he climbs out of the nursing home window to escape from going to his own 100th birthday party, which he is not amused by. Alan has been a part of so many significant events over the years, and the book jumps from present day of him hopping out of the window and back all the way to his birth. And he's been a part of so many significant events over the years. He was instrumental in the development of the atom bomb. He became good friends with Harry S. Truman. He was taken prisoner by Joseph Stalin. While in prison, he befriends Albert Einstein's unknown and secret brother who shares looks with Albert, but that's it, nothing else. That's actually why he was captured by the Soviets in the first place. They thought they had captured Albert to help them build the A-bomb, but found out it was only his brother, Herbert. This book is full of turn after turn, because the only certain thing about Alan Carlson's life is that it's uncertain. Well, that and the reality that man is sinful. You see, even the protagonist, even the good guys, are thieves, murderers, drunks, open haters of God. One of the best pictures of this is when the main character, Alan, and Einstein's brother, Herbert, get sent to disappear in Bali with a large, large sum of money from a Chinese dictator. Herbert meets a woman, falls in love, and marries her. Soon after being married, his wife is explaining to Herbert that anything in Bali has a price. Herbert, just like everything else in his life, didn't understand what she was saying. She proceeded to ask her husband, what is one thing you want? One thing you want. Herbert replied, I want to be able to drive, something he was never able to do because he was so terrible at it. Well, his wife, Amanda, walks out of the house and says she has some things to do, some errands to run, but will be home by dinner. When she got home, not only did she have a driver's license in Herbert's name, but she also had a diploma that he was now a certified driving instructor. Herbert thought this was amazing, but it didn't make him a good driver. His wife replied that in a way it did make him a good driver because now he had a position where he decided what was good driving and what wasn't. Then there's one of the most heartbreaking lines in the entire book. And trust me, there's a lot of lines in this book that are just heartbreaking. The author writes, life worked in such a way that right was not necessarily right, but rather what the person in charge said was right. You might not think that this is heartbreaking because it's a silly fiction book, but fiction has a way of showing unfortunate truth in really playful ways. The reality of our verses this morning, the reality of so much of scripture, the reality of, our, of so much of our lives today 
is that we forget or we ignore who God is. We forget his promises. We have an unbiblical view of God. We act and live like we are God and we take matters into our own hands. Realities about God and scripture that make us uncomfortable make us say that they must mean something else. That must mean something else. Or, or that's not my God. I, f- I follow a different God. Now, maybe we wouldn't say it that way because we just say, well, I have a different interpretation of that. But so much of what happens in Genesis 25, 19 through 34 expresses this exact same heart of this quote from this silly fiction book. And it's devastating. God is forgotten. And man lives as though they are in charge and they know better than God. And yet God's promises, his plan, continues. In our passage this morning, we will see how God's promises display our need and God's goodness despite our sin. We will see how this passage has on full display our desperate need. We will see how it displays God's goodness and glory and grace, even despite our wretchedness, our sin. First, in verses 19 through 21, we see God's promises display our dependence. God's promises display our dependence. Let's read verses 19 through 21 again. Verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Seems something seems like something simple that we would just glaze past in these verses. But it's so important for us to understand the importance of genealogies, no matter how short they are explaining what has happened in the lives of these families. Not only were they significant for the specific families listed in the continuing family lines, not only are genealogies significant for us in dating what is happening in Scripture, But most supremely, and often the thing we ignore the most, is genealogies are significant because they display the goodness and sovereignty of our God in continuing his promises. Genealogies scream of our dependence on his goodness and sovereignty. Genealogies above all else shout that he is God, that he is worthy, that goodness and grace find their meaning in him. The genealogy we have in these verses is short, but it proclaims exactly this. The generations are here today and gone tomorrow, but God remains forever. Abraham, formerly Abram, is only Abraham now because of God, because of God's promises, because of God establishing his covenant with Abraham. Abraham is only Abraham because he is dependent on God's promises. Because God has shifted his life. Because God has said, this is the plan. And this covenant with Abraham means everything for us too. 
It didn't just mean everything for Abraham. Abraham wasn't just dependent on it. We are too. Through this covenant, we get a glimpse of the snake crusher that is certainly coming. Isaac is not here without God either. Abraham and Sarah in their old age have this son to continue their line, a son that made them laugh when God told them they were going to have it. And this is a continuation of his promise. But also, Isaac was to be sacrificed as an act of obedience to Yahweh, but Yahweh provided a sacrifice instead of Isaac. In this provision of God, in this continuation of his promise through the line of Abraham, we get another beautiful picture of the suffering servant who is coming that will deliver us from our certain death as Isaac is delivered by this other sacrifice. Do we see how significant these genealogies are in expressing our dependence on his promises? God's promises are sure. And even in our doubt, he moves his promises along so graciously. How God brought Isaac and Rebekah together is further evidence of his goodness and our dependence. Isaac praying in verse 21 just adds to this picture. Just like his mother, Sarah, his wife, Rebekah, is barren. To man, it would seem that the promise of a continued line is in jeopardy. And that's exactly what it seemed like to Isaac and Rebekah. But again, with a glimpse of the promise not continuing, Isaac expresses his dependence on God. God alone who established the covenant. God alone can continue the promise. Isaac knows the covenant is entirely reliant on good and gracious God. It has no hope otherwise. So Isaac can only have one response to his wife being barren. Dependence on God. Now I I don't want to go too far off the text by saying this or by giving us a relatable example midway through that we need to follow. But I think it's important to just take a brief pause here. Because I don't, I don't want to lose sight of the big picture, but the greatest way that Isaac could love Rebekah was to love Yahweh the most. The greatest way he can show his love for his wife is through utmost reliance on God. Listen, husbands, wives, dependence on Christ is the greatest hope for your marriage. There's nothing else. They're not, your spouse is not your salvation. Christ is the greatest hope for your marriage. So Isaac goes to God, who alone is able to deliver. And Isaac prays for his wife. There is worry. There is need. There is doubt. One commentator says, an act of God brought Rebekah and Isaac together. Now it will take another act of God to overcome her barrenness. So Isaac brings it to God and and prays for God's will to be done above all else. And listen, God is still God, even if the prayer isn't answered exactly how we wanted it to be in our finite minds. Isaac goes to God in prayer, and he knows the covenant all began with him. It began with his will being carried out. And God grants Isaac's plea for his wife. 
And there is hope. The promise continues. It expresses our dependence on him. This morning at 2.06 a.m., I was woken by a scream of mommy. They they never scream for daddy at 2 in the morning. But I was awoken by a scream of mommy at 2.06. And I went into my oldest two's room, and my second oldest, Eli, is sitting on the bottom bunk, and he's just sitting up. And I said, hey, bud, what's wrong? And he goes, I need to lay back down, and I need you to put my covers back on me. That was it, just for clarification. So I was like, all right, bud, lay back down. I just wanted to go back to bed. Lay back down. And I put his covers back on him, and I went back in bed, and I couldn't fall asleep for like 30 minutes. But that's what dependence looks like, except my child is fully capable of putting his blankets on himself. We are not capable of continuing God's plan. In all seriousness, we're more helpless than my four-year-old crying in his bed at night, I need your help putting my blankets back on me. This expresses our dependence on God's promises. His promises display our dependence. We are completely reliant on him. Because without him, they don't continue. They don't continue with us being good enough with us being faithful enough, with me mustering up enough faithfulness? No. So first, God's promises display our dependence. Next, God's promises display his sovereignty. God's promises display his sovereignty. Let's read verses 22 through 28 again. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. There's struggle. There is fighting within the womb of Rebekah. And it seems like there is already hostility between these two twins in the womb. And Rebecca's immediate response, just like Isaac had, was to turn to God, turn to prayer. So yes, she expresses the same dependence, but her prayer is a question to God. Why is this happening? Why am I experiencing such discomfort? Rebecca lacks understanding and wants to know what is happening. So she goes to God who can provide understanding about this struggle. And in God's response we clearly see his sovereignty. We see that he is ruling and reigning over all. In other words, we see that he's God. Yahweh answers her because he has known this all along. He is in control. Nothing falls outside of his plan. 
We cannot think that God sets his covenant in place with his people and then his hands off and says, I'm removed from it. No, God's there every step of the way. He's ruling and reigning over it the entire time. To say any otherwise is a denial of scripture. It's a denial of what Isaac and Rebekah are doing. As soon as something goes wrong, as soon as there is doubt, as soon as there is hopelessness of, man, my wife is barren, as soon as there is, man, there's this pain within me that's not normal, something's going wrong, their response is immediate dependence on God in prayer. And their dependence in prayer points to God's sovereignty, that he is in control. Why else would they be going to him and depending on him? Why would they bring these things to a God who has not made it abundantly clear that he's in control? This response of God, to be honest, makes us uncomfortable. There have been many times in the past that it makes me uncomfortable. Church, I truly battled with this passage because I know how uncomfortable, maybe even angry, it will make some of us. I know how uncomfortable it is to talk about certain subjects in Scripture. But in the end, I have to preach it as what the text says. You know why? Because I'm not God. We cannot write a different Bible just because this part or, or what other parts of Scripture clearly say about Esau and Jacob, what other parts of Scripture clearly say about them because they make us uncomfortable, we don't teach them. That says we're writing a different Bible. God answers her prayer by telling her that she has two different nations in her womb, two peoples divided. As a mother, I mean, just as a mother, I doubt you want to hear about such division with children that have not even been birthed yet. Such hostility. One of them shall be stronger and mightier than the other, but the older shall serve the younger. Now in the prayer, maybe you see, maybe you see the sovereignty of God, but you don't see the discomfort that I'm talking about that is definitely there. These are twins within Rebecca's womb. There's no reason one should have favor over the other. There's no evidence for why the younger twin will be chosen by God and the younger would be and the older would be passed by. There's nothing. Maybe you don't see God saying that. He surely does. You see, we know the rest of the story. We know that from Jacob will come Israel and the Israelites. And we know that from Esau will come, or Edom will come the Edomites. And from the womb, God says of twins, there will be division. The older will serve the younger. We might can say with these twins, Father Isaac... We might can point back and say, hey, with the twins' father, Isaac, there was this exact scenario. And we might be able to say, uh, that was obvious why God chose to continue the, problem with, or the promise with Isaac and not Ishmael. I mean, Ishmael was conceived by man trying to hijack God's plan. Ishmael was born by man's devices, not God. By Abraham and, and Sarah saying, we'll take matters into our own hands. We won't trust in our old age that God is going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. 
So it might be obvious in that situation why the promise continued with Isaac and not with Ishmael. We might can point back even further to Cain and Abel. And we can say, well, Abel made his sacrifice by faith. He was, he was chosen because he was righteous, not because God chose him before the foundations of the world. And we can say Seth became the child of promise, that the promise would continue, that a, somebody that would, the snake would bite their heel and they would crush the serpent's head. We might can say, hey, that was because he was righteous, he was faithful, not because God chose him before the foundations of the world. And that the line continued with Seth after Abel was put to death. But what can we say that separates Jacob and Esau? What can we say that are twins within their mother's wombs? Not even their mother's womb, not even born yet. That God chose Jacob and not Esau before the foundations of the world? That makes us too uncomfortable. We couldn't say that. We could never say that. Surely there's something righteous about Jacob in his mother's womb. Surely it is because of the faith that he already has within her womb. Listen, God chose Jacob and not Esau because of his grace. That's it. He chose Jacob and not Esau because there was nothing redeemable about either of them. And yet God in his grace saved Jacob from himself. How is salvation any different? It's not by any righteousness we have. It is not because of anything we have attained. It is all the grace of God in saving us when there was nothing redeemable about us. A misunderstanding of this is a misunderstanding of God's promises. A misunderstanding of this is a misunderstanding of the gospel. God declares without a doubt, while these babies are still inside of their mother's womb, that the older would serve the younger. And if you fast forward, in 2 Samuel 8, verses 13 and 14, we read, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Why is that important? The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, become the servants of David, the descendants of Jacob, Israel, God's chosen people. Maybe you still don't see the choosing of Jacob over Esau in this prayer. Maybe you say it's not clearly there. And you can turn here if you want, or you can write it down and go to it later. But listen to Romans 9, 10 through 13. And this is the part that makes us the most uncomfortable of all, just reading God's word. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, that's God. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is just me reading scripture. This is what makes me uncomfortable. This is what gets to my heart and says, this can't be. Rebecca conceived children by one man. They were not even born, had done nothing good or bad, but God chose Jacob and not Esau. 
Before the foundations of the world, this was God's plan, not based on any works, but based on God and his grace in rescuing Jacob, a sinner, and continuing his promises. Esau remained a slave to sin, a hater of God, an enemy of God. And it's as, it's as though Paul knows this will make us uncomfortable, church. It's as though Paul knows this will make us squirm. This will make us second guess. That this is, he knows this is a hard truth to grasp. Because in the very next verse of Romans 9, that was 10 through 13, verse 14, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. That we will look at God choosing Jacob and not Esau before they were even born and say, God is unjust. I don't follow that God. Believer, we must be careful. We must be very, very careful. For we are not God. And we run the danger of writing a different Bible than the one we have, than the true word of God that isn't by man, it's by God. John Piper says, be careful that you do not play God and tell him how he should save. Be careful you do not stand above scripture and demand that it be one way and not the other. Be careful that you do not assume that your heart is good enough to judge the goodness of God or wise enough to judge the wisdom of God. There are a thousand reasons why God does what he does, which we cannot yet comprehend. And I'm thankful for that. We all deserve to be treated as Esau because we're all sinners. We all, including Jacob, deserve the perfectly just wrath of God against sin. We all deserve to never, never know life. We all deserve to be strangers, enemies of God, destined for separation from him forever. No matter how hard this truth is, we can't deny it because it's scripture. God is incapable of injustice. No, God's promises display his sovereignty. They display he is in control, that he is God. After God's response to Rebecca's prayer, she gives birth to these twins. Scripture says that the first comes out red with all of his body covered in hair, so he's a wolf. They immediately donated him to the Knoxville Zoo. Just kidding. Um, no, but they, he comes out and they name him Esau because he's hairy, which means hairy, Esau. Then the second boy comes out holding the hairy heel of the firstborn. Many commentators say this grasping of the heel is a picture of Jacob tripping up Esau, as we will see in just a minute. And it's crazy because we don't have much about the childhood of these Boys, We don't have a story like we do with Isaac of his father taking him up to be sacrificed and then a sacrifice being provided. We don't have those things for the most part. We have that they grew up. And we get a description of these grown men in verse 27. And these descriptions could not be more different. Esau is a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob is a quiet man dwelling in tents. Many commentators have discussed what these descriptions mean in the original Hebrew. 
And they've reached the conclusion that Esau is one addicted to roaming the fields in search of sports. He's an outdoorsman, aggressive and tough. But Jacob is described as a plain man, mild and gentle manners, as, as a shepherd would be, pious, the complete opposite of Esau. Verse 28 is the perfect bridge into our last point this morning. And verse 28 hurts. It just does. Jacob and Esau's parents show partiality. This is sinful. This favoritism fosters the rivalry between these two brothers. Yes, they were already rivals. They were fighting in the womb. They were tussling in the womb. But their parents' sinful picking of favorites only intensifies the battle. Their favoritism not due to, is not due to anything God has spoken to Isaac or Rebekah. But God even uses their sinful favoritism in a way that he has previously, he's previously declared. Again, God's plan still happens. His sovereignty is still on display. Despite division in the family, despite future deceit from Rebekah and Jacob, Jacob who was chosen by God, despite him using man's devices instead of God's, instead of clinging to God's promises and trying to take matters into his own hands, even him, despite that deceit from Rebekah and Jacob to Isaac, God is better than man's sinful plotting. He will once again and then over and over again show that he alone is God. He alone is worthy of worship. You cannot thwart his plan. God's promises display our dependence. God's promises display his sovereignty. And lastly, God's promises display our sin. God's promises display our sin. Just like the sinful favoritism of the parents, it becomes clear in the following verses the sin of Esau and Jacob is great. And that despite their sin, the promises of God continue. That even though Jacob is a sinful man, God reigns supreme. Jacob is not on the throne. And God will use Jacob even through utter failure. Look at verses 29 through 34 again. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Warren Wearsby says, it's unfortunate when homes are divided because parents and children put their own personal desires ahead of the will of God. Right's not always right, but mainly what the person in charge says is right. That's essentially the quote I read to you from the book at the very beginning. The person in charge determines what's right. Man in their sinful plotting Parents and their sin of favoritism, putting themselves over God. And I would go a step further in Wearsby's quote to not just say it's unfortunate when parents, when homes are divided because parents and children put their own personal desires ahead of the will of God. I would not just say it's unfortunate, I would say it's evil. 
This may seem like an innocent story, but it's heartbreaking. It may seem like this sibling rivalry of, oh, he's coming in from working hard. He's going to ask for this soup. Not going to give it to him. Give me your birthright. That's not what's going on here. This is a devastating story. It's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Jacob is cooking, and Esau enters completely famished. He's starving. Esau makes his desperate need for food known. Give me food. I need it. And Jacob's response is so direct and forceful. Any right you have, brother, any inheritance, any promise of the future, any blessings from God, sell it to me for that bowl of stew. A bowl of stew now for future promise later. Seems like an easy decision to say no. But no, Esau's response is is if he doesn't eat, he will die. So of what use is a birthright to him if he's dead? If he dies of starvation, which seems like an exaggeration, he has no need of a birthright because he's dead. He has no future anyways. There's no thought of the future from Esau. It's only instant gratification in in Esau's heart and mind. He wants what he wants now. A future promise he can't see. It's way off in the distance. And you know what? What are we talking about? God's promises display our dependence. God's promises display his sovereignty. God's promises display our sin. Esau's little regard for the promises of God, that he estimated them as nothing, displays fully his sin. Displays that he's just here for the here and now. He's here for today, not tomorrow. And Jacob's response is again direct and forceful. Esau, enough. Swear to me your birthright before I, before I give you a single bite of this food. And just like that, Esau, Edom, sells and swears over his birthright to his brother for red stew. He ate his fill and he left. And it seemed like he did so without a care for the birthright he just sold. And the conclusion reached is that Esau hated, despised his birthright. It meant nothing to him. The birthright was something the birthright was not something immediate in front of Esau, so he estimated it as nothing. He wanted pleasure now. He didn't want to wait for the promises of God. Future blessing meant waiting. And Esau did not care to wait. Kent Hughes says, at the very heart of Esau's demise is the sad reality that he did not believe the word of God. God's promise was to him intangible and unreal. Listen, we can't excuse Jacob in this story. Jacob is is sinful in this story, taking matters into his own hands. Jacob is, is, is forceful, is arrogant. But Esau didn't even have any regard for future blessing meant for him from God. So Jacob, Esau, neither of their approaches to the birthright was right. 
it's, it's hard to defend his approach, Jacob's, of gaining this birthright. It's hard to defend him using his own devices, just like his grandfather Abraham had done in having a child. But despite his sin, despite Esau's sin, God's plan never ceased. And it was clear from the womb, no matter the sin of both boys, God's promises were and are sure. God's promises display our dependence. God's promises display his sovereignty. God's promises display our sin. When I say God's promises are sure, if you do not know what this means, God promised to send his son to become sin for us, to die the death we deserve. Though we are sinful and deserve hell, Christ took that on himself on the cross. He rose on the third day, defeating death and defeating sin. And God promises anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, anyone who who believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. God promises that although you deserve death, by faith you can have life in Christ. Don't have little regard for that promise. That promise, yeah, it displays your sin displays my sin. Yeah, that promise displays our dependence on another when we desperately want independence. It also displays our God's plan of rescuing us from ourselves, despite ourselves. God's promises are sure. Believers, know that God's promises do not fail. Your salvation is evidence of that. Your life in Christ is evidence that God's promises do not fail. When all of the world was having this this huge expectation of who Christ would be, that he would come and he would rule and he would reign and he would crush Rome beneath his feet, that he would be this strong political ruler giving freedom to the Jews. And then he didn't do it. He was crushed in front of them. They thought God's promises failed. They don't fail. God crushed death to death. Your salvation is evidence that his promises do not fail. His word is evidence that his promises do not fail. His promises display that he is God. It's definitely easier to say that than it is to live it. Believers, we are called to live in light of the promises of God every single day in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we are, every second, every minute, we are called to live out, live in the reality of the promises of God. Live in reality of God's promises that loudly proclaim, above all else, they proclaim that he alone is God. And that's what the story of Jacob and Esau proclaims. They proclaim that he is God. Let's pray.